listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, turn with me in our Lord's Word. 1 John chapter 2, in verse 27. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. This is one of those verses of Scripture that makes us want to scratch our heads and wonder what in the world was John speaking of here? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and in Ephesians chapter 4, the apostle talks about, the apostle Paul talks about teachers, the idea of somebody being a pastor or a shepherd and a teacher. And if we don't need a teacher, then we might as well just close in prayer right now and I'll go home. So how does this particular verse of Scripture apply in our lives when the Apostle John is saying, you don't need a teacher. You don't need anyone to teach you. It's amazing. You have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Abide in him. That's what we're going to talk about during the remainder of our time, this idea of abiding in Jesus. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? You know, abiding is the primary characteristic of a person who's really following God. How do you know whether somebody is following God? They are consistently, consistently following Him, abiding in Him. And it's not possible to abide with God or to abide in God without being somebody who's characterized by humility. We're in the middle of this series, Vision for Life, where we're talking about God's vision and mission for every single Christ follower, every single Christ-following family, every single Christ-following church. It's sad that we've got to qualify it that way today, but we do. Christ-following church, not just a church. And we've talked about the five core values. We've begun to talk about the five core values that every individual, every family, and every church should possess. Simplicity, the movement of the Spirit of God, and humility. Well, we've talked about why humility is important, what humility is, what humility isn't, and today I want to talk about what you want to talk about, which is how do I develop humility in my life? Because to develop humility in your life is to abide with Jesus Christ. If you're going to abide with Him, you have to be somebody. Your family has to be a family. And the church has to be a church that is characterized by that trait, that characteristic of humility. Now, what's interesting about 1 John 2, verse 27 is what the apostle says here. You don't have a need to be taught by anybody. Look at what he says. The anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. That sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? No need that anyone should teach you. Well, then why do we have pastors? Why do we have teachers? Why do we go to Bible studies if that's the case? You know, what the Bible is actually presenting here is this truth. You already, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and God, you already know enough Bible to be dangerous. 
You already know enough about Jesus and enough about the Bible to be dangerous. Dangerous to the world, dangerous to the devil, dangerous to your own flesh in a good, God-honoring way. There's something about when a man or a woman or a boy or a girl first gives their life to Jesus Christ and it's a genuine conversion experience. They recognize for the very first time that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins and they give their life personally to that Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and they humble themselves and they say, and they mean it, they don't just say it, Jesus, you are now the Lord, the Master, the God of my life and they give him the reins to their life. There's something about that where there's a hunger and a thirst and a desire to walk with God. If you've ever been around somebody who's newly given their life to Jesus Christ, you know that it seems like there's a bit of a radical transformation going on in their life, and there is a radical transformation because they're no longer walking according to the ways of the world the way they used to, no longer walking according to the ways of the flesh, their own desires the way they used to. They've found Jesus, and their desire is to be in the Word of Jesus, the Bible, and as they get the Word of Jesus in them, they're recognizing that this is the way I get to know God. I'm getting to know God, about God, and about myself, and about this thing called life that I've been living. And a new believer oftentimes puts an older believer to shame because they are doing something at a fundamental level that you and I as older believers, being around the block a few times, tend to forget, and that is they've got an anointing inside of them from day one put there by God, where they know what to do. They know from the genesis of their first giving their life to Jesus Christ, they know that the purpose of their life is to get to know God, to be in the Word of God, the Bible, and to let Him transform their life. You know enough about the Bible if you've been a follower of Christ for any length of time to be dangerous to the world, dangerous to your own flesh, dangerous to the enemy, the devil, your revolution should be well underway. You've got an anointing given to you by God, the Spirit of God given to you, implanted in you, in me, at work in your family, at work in the body of Christ, and oh, how at times we squelch that anointing. We throw water on that anointing and we forget that we don't need anybody to teach us because what should be obvious about walking with God, what should be obvious about our next steps in our spiritual journey has been put there not by you and what you've done, but by the grace of Almighty God. You've been given, I've been given, anybody and everybody who's given their life to Jesus Christ has been given an anointing from God so that you don't need anybody to teach you. We already know enough to be dangerous. And this idea of abiding with God is completely intertwined, wrapped up in, inseparable from Walking in humility. 
See, any of us could have a little bit of an up-and-down walk with God. We all do have an up-and-down walk with God to a certain degree. You're not sinless. I'm not sinless. You've said things with your mouth you shouldn't have said, done things with your body that you shouldn't have done, thought things with your mind that you shouldn't have thought of. Am I right? Who can agree with me about that? The rest of us are lying and proving what I'm saying true anyway. See, if we look at our lives like an investment, which is what it is, it's an investment for God. Investing 101 is that you invest for the long term and you understand that where you start is not where you want to end up years from now. And if you look at an investment chart, some of you have done that more recently and that's why you've come depressed, but you'll leave here encouraged. You understand that an investment has peaks and valleys. There are up times and there are down times. But when you look at the overall trajectory of your investment, this is what you want to see. You want to see that it's higher at the end from where it was at the beginning. And the same is true in your life and mine. You might say things at times you shouldn't say, do things you shouldn't do, think things. That's where it all begins. Think things you shouldn't think. And so you sin. John said, if any man says he's without sin. If we say we're without without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, not some, from all unrighteousness. That's the idea of somebody who's abiding with God. When you're abiding with God, you're confessing your sin. You're bringing it before him. You're acknowledging the things that you do that you shouldn't have done, the things that you haven't done that you should have done, We sin in two ways, by doing things we shouldn't do and by not doing things we should do. All sin falls into one of those two camps. But when we're abiding with God, when we're walking with him, when we're exercising humility with him, that needs to be the characteristic of your life if you're a Christ follower. It needs to be the characteristic of your family. In your family, Your family needs to be characterized by being one that is marked by humility. And the church, even though churches like individuals, church is an organism, primarily not an organization. That's not a plug for a church being disorganized. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm talking about this paradigm, this understanding that a church is primarily a living organism comprised of people. And there are moments when a church, just like an individual, just like a family, has peaks and valleys and ebbs and flows, but the overall characteristic of a church must be one of increasing humility because that's what it means to abide with Jesus. There's a direct correlation to your and my abiding in Jesus as it pertains to our humility. We become like the people we associate with, and by golly, I hope that we are associating very closely with Jesus in our individual lives and in our families and in the body of Christ. This idea of consistency is absolutely important in your life and in mine, in your family and mine, and in the family of God, the church. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, the amazing thing about this passage of Scripture is that Paul wrote it in the direst of circumstances. Philippians is a handbook for how to be happy. You say, well, what's unusual about that? What's unusual about it is that he wrote it while he was in prison. Paul wrote 
this manual, the Christian's joy manual, the book of Philippians, while he was in prison. And that's the counterintuitive nature of God. That when God gets a hold of your life and really gets a hold of your life and you let God have control, the issue of control is a big one in individual lives and in families and in the body of Christ, who's going to control when God gets a hold of a life, life begins to become counterintuitive. You begin to do things you otherwise would not do. You begin to say things you otherwise would not say because you are beginning to think in ways that you otherwise would not think because God has given you an anointing. The Spirit of God, who does what? He teaches you all things so that you don't need a teacher. You already know enough about what it means to walk with Jesus Christ that if you did it, your revolution would be completely on. Game on, folks. You already know enough about the Word of God, enough from the Word of God. Even if you've known Jesus for 30 seconds and your Bible is open, you're beginning to read, God is pouring himself into you. God has already poured himself into you through his Word. You already know enough that if you began, if I began, if we began in our individual lives and in our families and in the church to put the word of God that we already know into action, to apply what God is teaching us, we'd be dangerous to the world, even more so than we currently are. We'd be dangerous to our own flesh, the enemy within, and we'd be dangerous to the devil himself. This is what the scriptures mean by we don't need anybody to teach us because nine times out of ten, you already know what God wants you to do. Nine times out of ten, I already know what God wants me to do. He's revealed it to me in his word. And the thing that's fundamentally different between those of us who know Jesus Christ and have known him for a long time and those of us who are around people who have just accepted Christ, they can kind of put us to shame in that we see their fire for God, don't we? We see their hunger to put the Word of God into practice. We see that somehow they're like sponges. They hear something from the Word of God and they want to do it, whereas those of us who've been followers of Jesus for a longer time, we begin to get more academic in our study of the Scriptures. See, there's a difference between studying the Scriptures and meditating on the Scriptures. The Pharisees studied the Scriptures. You see what I'm saying? The Pharisees studied the Scriptures. They didn't meditate on the Scriptures. The difference between meditation is one of marinating in the Word of God, letting your whole life stew in the Word of God. See, because Jesus did not call one of the Pharisees to be an apostle, and they studied the Word of God. They knew the Word of God. They memorized the Word of God, the Pharisees. And even to this day, 2,000 years after the fact, when we bring up the word Pharisee, we know that there's a train wreck on the horizon. Because every time we see the Pharisees coming up in the Scriptures, we see that these are the guys who knew the Word of God. These are the guys who memorized the Word of God. These are the guys who gave Jesus the hardest time when they should have been Jesus' greatest allies. 
See, this is something that concerns me, and it should concern you as well when it comes to our Awana program. I love Awana. I love that we put into the hearts of young lives the Word of God, and we emphasize the memorization of Scripture. But if we only emphasize the memorization of Scripture, then all we will be doing is raising up young, future, wannabe Pharisees. And God doesn't work through Pharisees. He works through men and women, boys and girls, who are abiding in Him, who are walking in humility as a matter of consistency. Get over the fact that you're going to have blips and blurps and valleys in your walk with God, but the overall trajectory of your life must be one of consistently walking with God in greater and greater surrender, walking with God in greater and greater and greater humility. Why would I say that? Because Philippians chapter 2 makes it abundantly clear. Look with me in this joy manual in verse 1. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Don't let anybody tell you, including yourself, that unity is not really that important. Unity is important. When God does something, it is unified. Harmony is important in your own walk with God. Broken fellowship due to sin hinders your ability to abide with God. That's why we confess our sin. We acknowledge it. That's one of the characteristics of walking in humility. God forgives and cleanses. That's the idea of sanctification in the Bible. Primary teaching in the Bible. Sanctification. Don't let something that you know needs to be dealt with between you and God go unresolved. When God does something, he prioritizes unity in your own walk with him, in your walk with the people in your family. Unity is important. God created the family. And a house divided against itself will not stand. And some of us are simply proving what the Scriptures say to be true. A house divided against itself will not stand. So don't belittle the importance of unity in your family. And don't belittle the importance of unity in the body of Christ. A church becomes dangerous to the devil. A church becomes dangerous to the world. A church becomes dangerous to the flesh in proportion to her unity. And a church becomes dangerous to God and dangerous to the reputation of Jesus Christ when a church is not unified because that gives an open door and a foothold to the one who should not have an open door and not have a foothold, the devil and the flesh and the world. Unity is important. Verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Look at the importance of the mind. Attitude does determine altitude. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a passage of Scripture that's emphasizing the humility and the humanity of Jesus. This is not a de-emphasis on his deity. This is not something, not a passage that's to be taken out of context, emphasizing or trying to suggest that Jesus was not God. This is a mind-bending, mind-blowing passage that's trying to help us understand that although Jesus was God, he gave up the exercise of his deity and the full expression of his deity to become what you and I don't really understand is nothing, to become human. See, that's what it says. In verse 7, he made himself nothing. See, compared to God, human beings were nothing. Compared to God, we're nothing. And we see immediately how I had a place and how bizarre it would be to think of ourselves as something when compared to Almighty God, we're absolutely nothing. The primary characteristic of your life and mine individually and in your family, your family if it's a Christ-following family, and in the body of Christ must be one of humility. Verse 3 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. When we consider somebody else as significant as ourselves, that's not obedience to what the Scripture teaches. That's no big deal. No, the big deal is when we begin to consider others as more significant than ourselves. That's counterintuitive. That's revolutionary in your marriage. That's what brings unity in the body of Christ. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. A number of years ago when I was in seminary, I was doing what most seminarians do. You share a big house and you pool your resources because you can't afford to live there by yourself. You rent this place and you have roommates. You have housemates that you pool your resources with. And I was living in Portland, Oregon and finishing up my seminary time with some other seminarians. And one time I was up on the second level of the house, the second floor where my bedroom was, and I looked out the window, and there, to my amazement, in the backyard, I kid you not, running around on the grass was this thing that was never there before. And it was running back and forth in the yard, and I said, what in the world is that thing? I'd never seen a white, furry thing in the backyard before, running back and forth, not just running, but depositing a little something over here and depositing a little something over there and watering this plant over here and watering that plant over there. So what did I do? I did what you would do. I went downstairs and I asked one of the housemates, hey, did you know there's a, yeah, that's a dog. We didn't have a dog in the house before. Oh, yeah, well, that's so-and-so. Well, who's so-and-so? Oh, that's our new housemate. Oh. So we have a new housemate, and that housemate has a dog, 
But we haven't had a discussion about that. And that was the beginning of a bit of a disunified time. And there we were, seminarians, preparing to preach, preparing to teach, preparing to shepherd, to lead others in the house of God, in the church, and we didn't even get the importance of unity. We didn't even understand the importance of good communication. We didn't even understand what Philippians chapter 2 is talking about. In humility, consider others better than yourself. See, what had happened is one or two of the housemates who were friends with that guy, who was friends with that dog, thought it wouldn't be a big deal just because they were friendly with that guy and who was friendly with that dog. I got some unresolved issues here with that dog, don't I? (laughs) Didn't consider the other people in the house as more important than themselves. And whenever we don't consider others as more important than ourselves, there's difficulty and hardship coming. Haven't you found that to be the case in your marriage and in your relationship with your children and in your relationship with your parents? The number one problem is not some demon lurking in a closet waiting to come out and scare you to death at an opportune time when you're caught off guard. That's not the number one problem that you have in your family. The number one problem that you have in your family is And if you're not attentive, if you're not abiding and obeying that anointing that's been implanted in you, that teaches you everything, if you're not doing that, you'll consider yourself as more important than other people. Maybe you'll consider others as equal to yourself, but you certainly won't consider others as more important than yourself. And when we don't consider others as more important than ourselves, There's nothing spiritual about that at all in a good way. Nothing spiritual about that at all in a good way. It's spiritual in a bad way. It's carnal, it's fleshly, it's destructive, it's divisive. To abide with God is to let that anointing that's in you put there by God, the Holy Spirit, teach you about all things of which you need to be taught, all things that you already know are true. You already know when it's appropriate to apologize. You do if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And as you mature and you get more sensitive to that anointing, the teaching voice of the Holy Spirit within you, what happens is you don't let as much time anymore go the way you used to because you're abiding with him more and more. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And what happens in your life and in mine and in your family and in my family and in your church and this church, if you're listening by podcast or by radio, your church, your family, your life, what's supposed to be happening in our lives is that we are abiding with God. The anointing that God has given us in the Holy Spirit teaches us all things. But with the passage of time, see what happens is we undo ourselves because we begin to think that nine times out of ten is complete obedience when it's not. Partial obedience is disobedience. It's that one area where the Spirit of God is speaking to us about. It's that one area 
that we know. We don't need a teacher. We don't need a human being to say it. We know our conscience bears witness with the Holy Spirit, the anointing that's within us, so that we don't need, we don't need anybody to teach us because it's obvious what God is trying to teach us. But what we need is not simply to have a mental assent to what God is trying to teach us, but a submission to the Lord who is teaching us. See, that's what makes the difference between a Pharisee and a disciple. Merely knowing the Word of God will not change your life. It will not change my life. Merely knowing the Word of God will not revolutionize your family. You can try to cram more Bible verses into that cranium of yours, but it's going to be absolutely useless and futile unless those Bible verses are accompanied by one primary way that every Bible verse should be taught. Every Bible verse should be approached in this fundamental way. If it's not, it doesn't matter how much Bible you know. Remember, the Pharisees knew a whole lot about the Bible. Memorize portions of Scripture in the Bible. Turn with me to James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. See, we've got two ears and one mouth on purpose to listen a lot more than we talk, right? Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. There it is. Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The big difference in your life, what's going to create a revolution in your life. What creates a revolution in my life? See, it's universal. What creates a revolution in your family and in the family of God and the church is not simply being aware of the Word of God. That's not going to change your life. It's not that you need more time in the Bible unless you don't have very much time in the Bible. There's got to be some type of a reservoir for God to you'd be able to draw from. We'll get to that in a minute. But in most instances, you don't need somebody to teach you. You don't need to understand with any more clarity what you already understand. What I already understand is the right thing to do before God, the right thing to do before your spouse, the right thing to do before the church. We have an anointing that's within us, and we have the Word of God that we are to receive with meekness. The Word implanted in us. It is the submission to the Word of God as the authority that it is that really brings the transformation in your life and mine. You see, it doesn't matter for us in the evangelical community. Follow me on this. Watch this. Pay attention. Use those ears. Open up your heart to what I'm about to say. It doesn't matter that we believe the Word of God to be authoritative, that every word inspired, theonoustos, you can use the fancy Greek words if you want to. We believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, every single word, every jot or yod and every tittle, every single part of it. It doesn't matter. The Pharisees believed that. 
what matters and what will make the difference in your life is what will matter and what will make the difference in your family. It's the same thing that will matter and make a difference in the family of God, the church. It's not just hearing the Word of God, which deceives us. We're like a guy when we just don't pay attention to the Word of God. We look in a mirror like a woman looking in the mirror or a man looking in the mirror. And when we walk away and we forget what we look like. No, it's the idea of receiving with meekness. That's the key. That's the thing that revolutionizes your Bible reading. And when your Bible reading is revolutionized, your life is revolutionized. It's the way that we read the Bible or the way that we don't read the Bible that will bring the change or cause us to simply be a hearer of the Word, self-deceived by not putting it into action. What you need in your life, what I need in my life, What you need in your family is what I need in my family. What you need in your church is what I need in my church. What we need is to receive with meekness the Word of God and plant it in us. This is why most churches could exchange doctrinal statements and nothing would change. It doesn't matter that we believe it's the inspired Word of God unless we submit ourselves to that inspired Word, unless we submit ourselves to God who gave us His Word. That's what makes all the difference in the world. It's the difference between being a Pharisee and being a disciple. It's receiving the Word of God with meekness. It's recognizing the Bible as a book supreme among all other books. The Bible is such a book that man couldn't write if he would and wouldn't write if he could. The Bible is not just a motivational book. It's not inspired like Hemingway. It's not inspired like Henry David Thoreau's writings. It is breathed by Almighty God so that you could understand the heart and the mind and the ways of God. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Well, we've got to get busy having the thoughts of God, having the mind of God, understanding the truth about God, because when we understand the truth about God, we understand the truth about ourselves. When we understand the truth about ourselves, then the revolution is on, and that's exactly what you need in your life. That's what I need in my life. That's what we need in our families. That's what we need in the body of Christ. We need a revolution, and here's how your revolution can begin. Here's how your revolution can be sustained. Are you ready? I'm going to throw a ball. I want you to catch it. The revolution is sustained by right beside your bedside, you probably have a nightstand, a night table, someplace. And if you don't, you've got a bed someplace. Most of us in the United States of America have a bed. And if you don't, you've got someplace where tonight you're going to put your head down and you're going to close your eyes. You're going to go to sleep. Next to wherever that spot is, you put your Bible. You put your Bible, and before you go to bed, you read the Bible as the last thing you read. Not twittering, not tweeting. You're not checking your text messages. You're not checking email. You're not checking the news report. You're not checking your stock report. Nothing. The last thing you read before you go to bed is the Bible by receiving it with meekness, submitting yourself to it, meditating on it, 
And you'll be amazed that when you wake up how the word of God that was brewing in your, your brain and your soul was marinating on that while you were sleeping, how you can memorize portions of scripture that way. And then when you get up in the morning, you don't first check your Twitter account, you don't check your emails, you don't check the stock report, you don't check the headlines of the news. You open up that same Bible and you start your day by reading the Bible. Do it for seven days, but don't just read the Bible because you'll be well on your way to being a Pharisee. Receive with meekness the word implanted in you. Submit yourself to the word of God. Do that for seven days. You know, somebody said, by the yard it's hard, but inch by inch, everything's a cinch. You don't need to focus about the next 10, 20, 30 years of your life walking with Jesus. All you need to focus on, all I need to focus on is the next seven days. Just the next seven days. And then on the eighth day, simply recommit yourself to doing what? To receiving with meekness the word implanted in you. To put into action what God has already told you you need to do. To put into action what God has already told you, the way that you need to think what you need to make right. You don't need a teacher. Why don't you need a teacher? Because you already know enough to make you dangerous to the world. You already know enough to make you dangerous to the devil. You already know enough to make you dangerous to your own flesh for the glory of God. You don't just read the Bible for motivational purposes, although it's the greatest motivational book of all time. You don't just read the Bible to get a personal blessing, although it will bless you unlike any other book. If you read the Bible that way, it's not enough to change your life. You understand what I just said? The way to read the Bible is to receive it with meekness, to submit yourself to the Bible. Humble yourself to God by submitting yourself to the Bible. And when you do that, when you do that, God begins to get a hold of your life. Your life begins to change. You begin to put the Word of God into practice. Your family begins to change. And the family that's changed now comes together with other families known as the body of Christ, and that church begins to change. And through your individual life and through your family and through this family of God called the church, we see the aroma of Jesus. We see the glory of God. See, you've got to stop reading the Bible only for personal gain. You've got to begin to read the Bible for the glory of God. Lord, whatever it is that you're saying here, I will put into action because your glory is at stake in my life. Your glory is at stake in my family. Your glory is is at stake in my church, and ultimately speaking, your glory is at stake in this whole world. And I am, by the grace of Almighty God, this is what you say to yourself, I am God's plan A. You are God's plan A. You receive with meekness the word of God implanted in you. Do it for seven days, especially. I'm not saying that that's your only Bible time, but if that is your only Bible time, and it's real, and it's true, in the evening before you go to bed, in the morning as the first thing. And you do that for seven days, submitting yourself to the glory of God, saying, Lord, I submit myself to you by submitting myself to your word. Just do it for seven days, and on the eighth day, repeat, a revolution will be on in your own life. That revolution will spill over into every single relationship you have, and you will spread through your own revolutionized life the aroma of of Jesus Christ 
and the glory of Almighty God. That's the way it works. Quite a few years ago, there was a man named Dwight Lyman Moody, born on February 5th, 1837. D.L. Moody was the Billy Graham of the 1800s, preached the gospel to millions upon millions of people, tens of thousands, if that's even being conservative to say that, of people who gave their lives to Jesus Christ as a result of his preaching the word of God. And this was a day and an age where there was no television. This was way before the internet. There was no such thing as Twitter or Facebook. God moved mightily through him. His contemporary, R.A. Torrey, the guy who took his place, wrote a little book called Why God Used D.L. Moody. And I want to read just an excerpt to help you understand that it was no coincidence that God used D.L. Moody so significantly, so consistently. And the reasons why God used D.L. Moody are not rocket science. They're not a mystery. They're the same reasons that he would use you. And here's one of them. The first thing that accounts for God's using D.L. Moody so mightily was that he was a fully surrendered man. Fully surrendered to man. You know, it's not possible to abide with God consistently and to not take surrender seriously. Every ounce of that 280-pound body of his belonged to God. And yes, I would say that just that fact alone helps us understand that D.L. Moody had a few things to work on. He wasn't perfect, right? Every ounce of that 280-pound body of his belonged to God. Everything he was and everything he had belonged wholly to God. Now, I'm not saying that Mr. Moody was perfect. He was not. If I attempted to, I presume I could point out some defect in his character. It does not occur to me at this moment what they were, but I'm confident that I could think of some if I tried really hard. I've never yet met a perfect man, not one. I have known perfect men in the sense in which the Bible commands us to be perfect, that is, men who are holy gods, out and out for God, fully surrendered to God with no will but God's will. But I have never known a man in whom I could not see some defects, some places where he might have been improved. No, Mr. Moody was not a faultless man. If he had any flaws in his character, and he had, I presume I was in a position to know them better than almost any other man because of my very close association with him in the latter years of his life. And furthermore, I suppose that in his latter days, he opened his heart to me more fully than anyone else in the world. I think he told me some things that he told no one else. The first month I was in Chicago, we were having a talk about something upon which we very widely differed, and Mr. Moody turned to me very frankly and very kindly said in defense of his own position, Tory, if I believed that God wanted me to jump out of that window, I would jump. I believe he would. If he thought God wanted him to do anything, he would do it. He belonged wholly, unreservedly, unqualifiedly, entirely to God. Listen, Henry Varley, a man who was very close, a very close friend of Mr. Moody in the earlier days of his work, loved to tell how he once said to him, it remains to be seen what God will do with a man who gives himself up, who gives himself up wholly to him. I'm told that when Mr. Henry Varley said that, Mr. Moody said to himself, well, I will be that man. And I, for my part, do not think it remains to be seen what God will do with a man who gives himself up wholly to him. I think it has been seen already in D.L. Moody. Now pay attention to this especially because it applies to you and it applies to your family and it applies to the body of Christ. 
If you and I are to be used in our sphere as D.L. Moody was used in his, we must put all that we have and all that we are in the hands of God for him to use as he will, to send us where he will, for God to do with us what he will, and we on our part to do everything God bids us to do. There are thousands and tens of thousands of men and women in Christian work Brilliant men and women, rarely gifted men and women, men and women who are making great sacrifices, men and women who have put all conscious sin out of their lives, yet who nevertheless have stopped short of absolute surrender to God and therefore have stopped short of fullness of power. But Mr. Moody did not stop short of absolute surrender to God. He was a wholly surrendered man. And if you and I are to be used, and you and I, we must be wholly surrendered men and women. To abide with God is to be fully surrendered to him. To be surrendered to God is to be a humble person. To have a surrendered family is to have a humble family. To have a surrendered church is to have a humble church. It's not possible to separate abiding with Jesus, abiding with God, from walking in humility. And it's not possible to walk in humility without walking in surrender. You already know. You already know enough about the Word of God to be dangerous to the devil, dangerous to the world, and dangerous to your own flesh. You don't need anybody to teach you. What we need is to put into practice what we already know God has taught us. And this is what John is saying in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. You don't need anybody to teach you. What you and I need is to get busy with the teachings of Jesus to make sure that we are abiding with the Lord, walking with him in humility, because humility is not something. Humility with God is everything. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit couragematters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit couragematters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.